the amount of people who have told me that I look nice this morning <laughs> because I have my shirt tucked in. This is the one Sunday a year that I don't wear jeans and an untucked shirt. But is it an excuse for us to dress up, to, for those of us who are parents, to dress our kids up and we can take some nice pictures as a family? Is it an excuse to hear the kids sing and come up here and to uh, read the, the resurrection, the Easter story, and feel good about being a Christian today? Is this just some kind of a church growth strategy where it's like we, we pull out all the bells and whistles and do crazy things on Easter just so we can get a lot of people in the door and have a good offering you know, why, why do we celebrate Easter? Maybe a better question is this. Why is what we celebrate on Easter important? Why is what we are talking about this morning important? For some of you, this may be your 20th, your 40th, maybe even your 80th Easter service. Maybe for some of you, this is service number one. Why are we here? And why are we celebrating this morning? One author put it this way, take away the stories of Jesus' birth and you lose maybe two chapters in Matthew, a couple chapters in Luke. Take away the resurrection of Jesus and you lose the entire New Testament. If Christ has not come back from the dead, if Jesus is not alive, then none of this matters. But because he has, we have hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith. But before we get into that hope this morning... I just want to take a couple of minutes, and I, and I want to talk about the age that we're living in today. Social commentators have referred to our age as one where individualism and self-sufficiency are the highest values. That probably doesn't come as a surprise to you. That's what we're conditioned to think. That's how we're taught to live. That's how our, what our country is founded on, that we are rugged individuals. We are hard workers. We make things happen. We create the life that we want to have. We live in an age of imminence. In other words, we find our meaning. We seek to find our purpose in success, in sex, money, power, relationships, family. This age that we live in demands that we center and organize our lives around what makes us happy and the pursuit of that happiness and that fulfillment. Being true to myself. Being true to yourself is the highest value. Yet at the same time, so many of us live with an overwhelming sense that there's something more. 
There's something deeper. That to live our lives, for lack of a better term, in an Instagram way, where we try to curate our lives to only ever experience adventure, pleasure, comfort. Eventually, what we find out is that kind of life is shallow. That kind of life is just flat. The pursuit of success and money eventually crushes us because we can't ever achieve enough. We can't ever spend enough to satisfy our desires. Relationships that end or don't live up to our expectations reveal how much of our identity we give away to other people. Even family fails us. I mean, parents, we spend years and years and years loving and providing for and sacrificing for children And then at some point they move on to a different life, to a new season. And I know many of you in this room have experienced this. You look at each other and you say, well, what now? What now? There's a fear, I think, that all of us have, if we're honest, deep down, that all this striving for happiness, all of this hard work, that we put into finding ourselves and being true to ourselves lacks something deeper, something weightier that we all really want. And for us good church people, we look around at our, at our age and we say, well, this, it's because people don't believe in God anymore. But I don't think that that's really true. I think a lot of people still believe in God But I think a lot of people don't believe that God can give them the meaning and the purpose that they're really looking for. If you're familiar with the author C.S. Lewis, he wrote that we are all born as human beings with certain desires because the satisfaction of those desires exists. So we all have desires for food, We have desires for water. We have desires for sex because food, water, sex exists. But we also have desires for things that nothing in this world can satisfy. No amount of earthly experiences or pleasures can satisfy our desire for purpose or that sense of something deeper, that there's, that there's something bigger, there's something, to use a fancy word, transcendent, that we long for, that we're trying to get a hold of. Now, we trick ourselves into thinking that if I only had a better job, a job that I love going to, a job that, that I love what I do, if I only had a spouse who appreciated me more, or valued me for me, if I only had a better income, or friends that accepted me just the way I am, then, then I would feel complete. But Lewis wrote that if we have desires, those desires that can't be truly satisfied by anything in this world, then maybe, 
just maybe, we were created for another world. This is why what we celebrate today is important. And I want to encourage you today at some point, if you haven't already, to turn to John chapters 19, chapter 20, and to reread those words again. But this morning, I want to spend our time in the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. And you can find that in your Bible. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, please take one of those ones around you. On the seat is our gift to you this morning. The book of 1 Peter, it's kind of toward the end. Page 589. It's a little letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians that were scattered around the ancient world at that time. And in chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter wrote this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into a resurrection that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Resurrection. Peter, the other writers of the Bible, those who lived with Jesus, who saw Jesus after he came back to life, those who lived and were a part of what we call the early Christian church within a hundred years of Jesus' life, all of these people believed a fundamental truth, that a real Jesus with a real body came out of that tomb. A real Jesus with a real body came out of that tomb. It wasn't some spiritual Jesus. It wasn't some ghost Jesus. His body came back to life after it was dead. That's what people believed. That's what they believed. That's what Peter believed when he used the word resurrection. And you know what? Nobody expected it to happen. Not one person expected it to happen. And you, we know that because we read the stories about this that were written after this by the people who saw Jesus and they didn't try to paint themselves in a better light. They didn't rewrite history and say, well, you know, Jesus came back and we actually knew that he was going to do this. Like, we knew the whole time what he was talking about. We knew exactly what he meant. No, you read this and you see they never got it. They never understood it. Why? Because dead people don't come back to life. Dead people do not come back to life. If you remember after Jesus' resurrection, he ran into a couple of guys walking on the Emmaus Road. And they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize who he was. And he got to talking to them, walking with them. 
And they were sad. They were discouraged. And he started asking them, why? They were like, don't you know? Haven't you been around? This Jesus was crucified. And listen to what they said. They said that we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that this was the man, that this was the Messiah, that this was our Savior, meaning, but he got killed, so he's not. We hoped that he was, but he got killed, so he's probably not. Everyone saw Jesus hanging on that cross and believed that Jesus had been wrong, that they had been wrong about him. Their hope had been dashed. Their Jesus was dead. But then he wasn't. But then he wasn't. And Peter says here, he writes here, that because of the resurrection, because that Jesus who died came back to life, we can have We can have hope, the expectation that something is true, that something will be true, that it's real, that this hope Peter is talking about is not escapism. It's not wishful thinking, but he says that it is a living hope. It is a living hope. It's got legs on it. It's full of life. It's full of vibrant anticipation of something being true, something that will happen. And he says here, because of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is alive and not dead, we have a new birth, meaning that God has recreated us, that he has regenerated us, that we have a living hope, and that that living hope is found and rests in an imperishable inheritance. We have a hope that we will receive something. And that inheritance is the completion of our salvation. That inheritance that we look forward to, that we hope in, that we have confidence in, is the completion of our salvation. God's regeneration of us His transforming us, His giving us new life is part of His plan to recreate everything. What God is doing in us who believe is a taste of what He will do in the future. And that is where our hope is found. For the follower of Jesus, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is a crazy book, it's a a vision that God gave the Apostle John of eternity. And John writes that he has this vision. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, he writes this. He says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no death. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then he writes this. He 
who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. That is the inheritance that we will receive. That is why we celebrate Easter today and next year and the year after that. That's why we live in the hope, not just on Easter, but every day as Christians, because we know and we believe that that is true, that we, you and me who believe, will receive a new body and that we will live in a new world that's free of the stain of sin. This Our inheritance, Peter writes here, this inheritance is kept for us, is shielded by God's power until the day we receive it. The power of Almighty God guards our future. And you know what that means? It's as good as done. It's as though we've already received it because God's power guards it. He keeps it safe. And all of this is made possible, get this, by the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it's important that we talk about that, that Jesus came back to life in a real body because the bodily resurrection of Jesus gives shape to the rest of God's purposes. And this is where our pop Christian culture has messed this all up when it talks about the reality of heaven and eternal life because it turns it into some just hokey, meaningless, purposeless, dreamlike existence. But that is not what the Scriptures lay out. The writers of the Scriptures give us a clear picture of what they are talking about when they speak about resurrection, when they speak about our eternal life. Jesus' bodily resurrection means that we will be resurrected, that we will not be floating around on clouds, that we will not be living in some place called heaven forever and ever and ever. Jesus came back to life as a real person in a real body, and that guarantees that those of us who have faith in Jesus will one day spend eternity in a real body on a real earth. Those who have experienced the new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our destiny. Heaven is not our destination. Heaven is not our eternal home. The new world with new bodies, living with King Jesus in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other, in the world God intended. That is our destination. And that is our hope. And Peter says here in verse 6, read with me. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter writes, this hope, this reality that we look forward to, in this you greatly rejoice, but then he anticipates what the next question and the response will be. That sounds great. That's awesome. I love that. But what about now? What about now? What about my life that's filled with grief? What about the trials that I have to endure here? What about the demands of just being human? What about my relationships and my dreams and my goals for this life? Peter wrote here that this hope for our future is absolutely connected to our experience in this life, especially as we face suffering and as we face grief. How do we navigate the brokenness of this world? How do we make sense of relationships that are stained by betrayal? Injustice, oppression, racism, poverty, violence and persecution. When beauty is destroyed, just think about what you heard and maybe even what you felt when you watched the cathedral of Notre Dame burning. A symbol of beauty for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that just goes up like that. Peter writes here, and he tries to answer that question of, how can we possibly be happy? How can we possibly experience joy? How can we not live just curled up in a fetal position as we experience the brokenness of this world? Because it points to something bigger. It points us to something bigger. He says our faith, our hope, and he compares it to gold. That suffering, that trials, that grief refines that hope. It burns off the impurities. We still have our doubts. We still linger in the mystery of why these things are happening. We still acknowledge the suffering and the pain and we don't pretend that it doesn't exist. But what we experience in this life brings us to a point where we see that Jesus is all we have. And Jesus is all we need. Remember, Peter was not writing this in some ivory tower. He wasn't writing this in some place of academia that was separated from reality. This was a man who denied Jesus. This was a man who had run from Jesus' suffering. This was a man who believed that, the, that this man was God and he saw him tortured and crucified. This was a man who feared for his own life and hid. And ultimately, this was a man who would be killed because of his faith in Jesus. 
And he writes here that we can live today with a taste of what we will have when it's all said and done, inexpressible and glorious joy. That through our pain and suffering, we can find strength to put one foot in front of the other. Because the God who will wipe away every tear, because the God who will do away with pain one day, is the God who is present with us now, in our pain, and in our tears. Our lives now have meaning and purpose because of what God is protecting for us, our full and final salvation. You see, the cross of Jesus assures us that God is present in our lives and he understands our suffering. And the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that he's powerful enough to meet our needs, to deliver us from evil, and that his intentions toward us are good. For those of us this morning who are struggling to believe, trying to make sense of the suffering, I don't have a good answer for why. The Bible doesn't force platitudes down our throats. It doesn't give us quick fixes for the hardships that we face in this life. But what it does is present us with a God on a cross. A God who knows death. A God who defeated death who has a plan to recreate us and to recreate this world, but a plan that meant his own suffering. Suffering and pain can be God's megaphone in our lives. It can get our attention. It can shock us out of that self-sufficiency, that individualism, It can reveal that those desires that we have for peace, the desires that we have for things to be right, the desires that we have for flourishing and for joy, that those desires are real and that they have been put there by God. There has to be something more. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. And when all of our resources have failed, when our attempts to dull the pain don't work, the God on the cross and the God who defeated death is here, inviting us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of us are constantly tempted towards that self-sufficiency, to just grind it out, to just put our head down and go, to just try to struggle through this life, to try to find what we're looking for in our job, in our family, in the good things that we do, in the people that we help out. This culture pulls us further and further into that imminent sense, the now, 
And we trick ourselves into thinking that those desires that we have for significance, for satisfaction, for security, can be found here in other people and in other things. If we had this, then. If I could experience this, then. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Because Jesus lives, we can live. The resurrection tells us that there is another world that we were made for. And the resurrection gives shape to our lives in the here and in the now. We can enjoy the blessings. We can enjoy the experiences without mistaking them for what they really are. An echo of something greater. Something eternal. The taste of satisfaction. A taste of life. A taste of purpose and joy and acceptance that we will fully know one day. C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Again, Peter wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why we're here this morning. That's why what we do, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout our weeks, matters. Because we were made for something more. And we can experience that in the now. Because Jesus lives. That's why each Sunday we celebrate his death. We mourn his death together. And we celebrate the fact that he is not dead. We take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice and we proclaim to ourselves, we proclaim to one another as we are doing that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, but also we look forward and we proclaim that Christ is coming again and that we can live with that hope. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, to come. We will have stations to my right and to my left we have a station in the back. It's gluten-free for those who need that. And I want you to come this morning, and I want you to do it as a celebration. I want you to do it with hope, with gladness, with joy. And you may not be feeling that right now, and it's okay. And maybe it's just a step of faith for you to get out of your chair and come and do this. But this is a symbol for us that communicates what we really believe. That in this life, you will have troubles. But take heart, 
for I have overcome the world. That is our hope this morning. And I invite you to come and to participate in that now. Please pray with me. Jesus, we honor and we glorify you this morning. We lift you up because you have done what we are not able to do. And that is to give life. To conquer death. To give strength in the struggle. And joy that is far deeper than anything that we could achieve on our own. We acknowledge this morning that sometimes it's hard to believe this. We acknowledge that our faith falters, that we have our doubts, that we have our questions, that we have our frustrations, and we cry out and we say, why? But we praise you that you are here in the midst of that, that you don't stand far off, that you're not aloof, but that you suffered, that you faced evil, that you conquered death and that you invite us to come and to experience life in you. I pray that we would be a community of hope in this city. I pray that we as individuals and collectively as a church would live our lives not pretending that things aren't hard, but in the midst of them being present because you are present with us. We pray this morning that you would do a work in our own minds, in our own hearts, that you would meet us where we are. And we celebrate this morning that everything that we do is done with the understanding, with the hope, with the confidence, with the assurance that you are alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.